Hello and welcome everybody to another edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station, broadcasting out of the top of the historic Habern building here in downtown Louisville at 106.5 FM. But we also live stream to the world wherever you are with an internet signal at forwardradio.org. That's also the place to go to become a part of our community radio station. Whether you want to catch up on the archives, the podcast versions of our programs, become a volunteer with us. Maybe you want to get behind these microphones. Perhaps you have an idea for some great radio magic you want to make with us. An access hour, maybe you want to do a one-time thing. Or perhaps you want to chip in and help keep us on the air. This is a great community treasure and only takes $20 a day to keep it going. And you all make it happen. So go to forwardradio.org and become a part of this thing today. Uh, Well, today I'm really excited to join in the virtual studio with folks from literally across the country, spanning California to Vermont right now, (laughs) just by coincidence due to summer travels, a couple folks from Herbicide Free Campus. And I've got on the line with me, Mackenzie Feldman, founder and executive director. Welcome, Mackenzie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yay, I'm so glad to finally get to talk to you. As well as Ariana Masonave, director of development. Did I get that last name right, Ariana? Should have double checked that. It's Masonov, but you're Masonov. Not, <laughs> not bad. I did pretty good. All right. <laughs> so Herbicide Free Campus is an organization that Mackenzie founded. I started out sort of, it's gone through a few different forms that we'll talk about, but back in 2017. Uh, and she has since received the 2019 Brower Youth Award for her work with the Herbicide Free Campus. Um, but she's originally from Hawaii. Uh, and I think we might talk about how that history informs her work. Ariana also graduated from UC Berkeley with a PA in public health and psychology and a minor in food systems. Together, they are a powerhouse uh, helping lead a small staff at the Herbicide Free Campus. And you can learn more if you want to play along at home about this great organization at herbicidefreecampus.org. So welcome, friends. Tell us the story of how you became concerned about herbicides and started organizing to do something about it. Thank you so much, Justin. Um, Yeah, so... We all went to Berkeley, but funny enough, me and Ariana didn't really know each other at that point. But I was on the beach volleyball team at UC Berkeley, and one day when I showed up for practice, our coach had said, if the ball rolls off the court, just let it go because they sprayed an herbicide everywhere around the court. Our courts were in the mountains, so there's grass and just plants around the court. And me and my teammate, Bridget, she was a freshman at the time, and I was a junior, and we were both really concerned because we knew what herbicides were. Like you said, I, I'm born and raised in Hawaii, and Hawaii is ground zero for industrial agriculture. And right. so when I was in high school, I really uh, learned from the activists around me there was a huge movement to get these big corporations like Monsanto out of Hawaii because they do the majority of the GMO corn seed testing in Hawaii. And so they're testing these seeds to be resistant to really, really toxic pesticides. And you see the effects. A lot of people that were living near these testing sites were getting cancer and lots of birth defects and things like that. And so when I came to college, I had had already knew about these horrible effects of pesticides. Mm. And Bridget was studying something similar to me in school. So we both were educated on the topic. And we thought, wait a minute, what are they spraying? So we got our coach to introduce us to the athletics grounds manager. And he said he was spraying Ranger Pro which is essentially Roundup, right. active ingredient glyphosate. And it had just been declared a probable carcinogen in 2015. 
and this was in 2017 that this was happening. And so we just asked him, hey, you know, can you just not spray and our team can pick the weeds? Uh, because <laughs> he said, you know, it's not a problem. I don't have to spray. It's just that I don't have the people power to pick the weeds by hand. There's only one of me. And, you know, we had 19 girls on our team. And, you know, we're women and in reproductive age. We don't want to be exposed to yeah. these toxic pesticides. We could just pick the weeds. So uh, it's funny. I actually just got together with a few girls from my team and we were reminiscing on the fact that I was like, you remember when I used to just make you guys pick the weeds before practice? And at the time, they didn't know why they were doing that because they didn't know about pesticides. And now oh. that they see I'm still doing this. They're like, yeah, that was really awesome. But anyways, and so then we kind of, we realized, wow, it was actually really easy to eliminate herbicides from this area. The athletics grounds manager was really on board. We can take this model and expand it to the rest of campus since we know that they're spraying these chemicals, you know, on the rest of campus where students are laying on the grass and things like that. So... We formed a team. We got people from the student government involved, and we eventually got a grant to bring in a professional horticulturist to train our ground manager of, of UC Berkeley on organic practices and all of his his crew. So, and we got a pilot project going at the two biggest green spaces on campus, which are now organic. Pretty much the entire wow. space is organic now. And since then, we've expanded. When I graduated, it was basically just me continuing on with this, and now we have awesome staff, including Ariana. So I'm just grateful to be able to expand this. And now we work with students all over the country. So it's pretty exciting. This is something that students really care about everywhere, right? Yeah, they do. I think, you know, for the average student, it's not something that you ever think about. You don't go to school and think that this the grass that you're sitting in could potentially have been sprayed with toxic chemicals. It's just not something that is widespread knowledge in society. But for students that are maybe have had personal experiences, have family members who yeah. uh, are farm workers or farmers or have been exposed to pesticides, you know, it's something that they know about or if they're studying it in school and they've learned about it. So we really want to make this widespread information. We want this to be something that everybody is asking when they're going to the parks. You know, is this park safe for my, my children, my pets, for me to be sitting here and, you know, really change this dependence that we have mm. on chemicals? Yeah, it's one thing if like a private landowner wants to do it on their lawn. But when we start talking about spraying public spaces where children and pregnant people and dogs and all kinds of everyone might just go and, and have no idea, it, it really seems pernicious and problematic. So I want to bring Ariana into the conversation, too, and learn a little bit about how you got interested and involved in this issue of herbicides. Yeah, absolutely. Just to piggyback on that conversation about, you know, the ambient exposure, we I often say there's no warning labels on lawns and it's such <laughs> a ubiquitous exposure. And we have so much chemical toxicity in our everyday world. And this is just one small part. And I think that we feel if we're able to make change on university campuses, which are leaders in our country, and we really look to to be change makers and inspiration for what could be, then it will ripple out to affect you know, larger policy and potentially ripple out to farm workers and the EPA. So mm. it's a big issue. And this is sort of just one entry point. But yeah. speaking a little bit more about, you know, my background and where I come from, I grew up in Sonoma Valley, which is the wine country. And there are vineyards sprayed with pesticides everywhere. Right. And I had no idea about that when I was a child. And 
However, growing up, you know, there were many people in my family and community who ended up getting cancer. And mm. we, there's obviously causal evidence is really hard to prove. But I've spoken to many health workers who say that the rates of cancer in Marin and Sonoma County, which have very high rates of pesticides used in their vineyards, are insane. Wow. And so it does feel like a really personal issue. And I think when about a year ago, I had moved home after being in graduate school and I studied global health and it was just like not a great fit for me. And I really wanted something that felt more on the ground rather than so bureaucratic. And I had was talking to a friend, Eliza, who also went to UC Berkeley and was working with Mackenzie. And, you know, she said, why don't you think about working for Herbicide Free Campus? And it started at a few hours a week and then gradually has increased. And it's really powerful to be able to see because I do have a public health background to be able to look at how, you know, this is both an environmental and human health catastrophe on so many levels. And I really like to bring the planetary health lens in, which is looking at how like the health of the people and the health of the planet are so intrinsically interconnected yeah. and we can't attack one without attacking the other. And I think that the pesticide issue is a really huge case study in this area. So it's kind of happenstance that I ended up here, but it's been really powerful to one, be able to work on something that's so important and two, to be able to see young people at the forefront of change. Mm, mm. So I think I've, I've got an idea for what your response is going to be, but I want to hear it from you all. Um, why focus on herbicides and not all the toxins, right? So uh, if it's an herbicide free campus, why, why not just be toxin free campus? I mean, even just in managing landscapes, you got pesticides and chemical fertilizers and aren't these just as much of a problem? But then also you think about cleaning products and stuff like that, even in an indoor environment. Is that really what's what's the ultimate goal here? And pesticides are a good way in or herbicides are a good way in? Yeah, totally, Justin. That's a great question. When we're thinking about landscapes, we really, our goal is organic. So we are really wanting to get all herbicides insecticides, fungicides, all of that out. And when we do bring in an expert to train our groundskeepers, that is the goal. And even beyond that, not a product swap of conventional products, um, you know, synthetics and swapping that out for organics. We really, our goal is really testing the soil, uh, balancing it, seeing if we need to add in, you know, what's the level of nitrogen, all these things. How can we have more holistic practices like compost tea and aeration mm. and overseeding and really looking at it through this holistic lens? The reason we focus on herbicides is because on a campus, it can get tricky because if you're talking about pesticides, you know, that's the umbrella for all of these different chemicals. So sometimes people think, oh, does that mean, you know, bed bugs in the dorms? Mm. And no, we really are focusing on, like you said, you know, the toxins are everywhere and cleaning products and all of that is really important. However, for our organization, we have to be specific so we can achieve this goal first of primarily looking at land management because that's what we're really focusing on changing. So we say herbicides because primarily what chemicals that college campuses are using are weed killers to kill the weeds. But like like I said, when we bring in, um, you know, when we are doing that transition, really teaching groundskeepers how to stop the dependence on all of these things, including, you know, and fertilizers too. And some of the schools we work with are on a coast in California. And, you know, if they're using fertilizers and that's going into the ocean and affecting things like algae blooms that we hear about. So yeah, the idea is ridding of all of these synthetic chemicals. You're exactly right. 
Yeah. And, and I think just to add on to that, another reason we focus on weed killers is because it comes a moral argument of why can't we have a greater acceptance of weeds? How can we educate people on the medicinal and herbal properties of weeds? How can we challenge this aesthetic? We like to say decolonizing aesthetics and challenge this ideal, uh, you know, lawn and really educate people on, you know, what is the history of lawns? How does this connect to colonization? How can we bring back native plants and, you know, drought resistant plants, things that are native here? And, and, that becomes, you know, a, a big talking point when we're focused on weed killers. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, I definitely want to spend lots of time thinking critically about the whole idea of lawns and why we feel like we need them. I mean, I guess herbicides are used in all of the landscape, too. Like, they're in the planting beds as well. But certainly it's this obsession with a monocultural, very verdant, lush lawn that seems to be the source of this misconception about what a healthy landscape is, right? Uh, and it's so common across America, but not everywhere you go. Although, I mean, our culture influences other cultures too, but this is crazy way to think about landscapes. It's, it's really goes back to the days of, you know, castles, right? And, and the, the king was the only one who could afford to have this, you know, well-tended lawn. Like it was basically a sign of, I'm so rich that I can throw money at this completely completely non-functional thing <laughs> right and and look how rich i am and it's just this very elitist mindset that now has translated into a just a keeping up with the joneses kind of expectation amongst neighbors that i'm not being a responsible citizen if i don't keep every dandelion out of my lawn where does this come from it's crazy right it's so crazy and i think we're so <laughs> entrenched especially like you said in our society with the image of prestige and having to sort of flaunt our wealth and, you know, it's classist, it's colonial. There's mm. like so many layers. And I think that with universities, it's become sort of their, you know, MO is having these long, sprawling lawns yep. that have perfection. I mean, I think about UCLA, like there, you can't even sit on the lawn uh. in, at UCLA because they're so... <laughs> highly respected and it's like what are we doing and I think that we really strive to be able to recreate our campuses and think about them as these productive centers of maybe growing food or having pollinator gardens bringing back native plants and I think that we've so lost the yeah. diversity and the monocropping is just it's water intensive it's really really intense for the groundskeepers to be have to upkeep that standard as well yeah yeah, you see it everywhere in marketing of universities. The iconic images all have very large lawns. For for us at the University of Louisville, it's the, called the Grawmeyer Oval in front of our main Grawmeyer uh, administration building. You know, it's ringed by a, a, a road where cars to circle around this parade grounds, basically a large, perfectly manicured lawn, uh, you know, with the, the, the mowing pattern even matters to people. Like, it's just, it's just so ingrained in the way uh, we think about what looks good and what would sell the university. But on the flip side, like if it's a space you, students can't even use, like either they're afraid to go or told not to go on it, right? Uh, because it's so manicured or so toxic, then 
I mean, how is that how is that attracting students, right? <laughs> like students want a place they can hang out and maybe even a place they can get their hands a little dirty, right? Um, have you all experienced that in part of your work with campuses that uh, getting students engaged in either weed pulling or making something more useful out of the lawn is actually a, a great way to sort of sell this as, as maybe a better way? Oh, yeah. That's a huge part of the work we do are these weeding days. Both, you know, because if you're asking groundskeepers to switch to, you know, reducing and eliminating the use of herbicides, it can often be more manual labor to handpick weeds. And so having students get involved in picking weeds both helps, you know, just more hands pulling, but also just a sign of respect to groundskeepers and shows that, you know, we recognize this as more work and we are wanting to prove that we are going to be here and we're committed to doing this. Because often, you know, students come in, they propose a project, and by the time it happens, they're graduated. And yep, then yep. people are just left with, okay, great, now I have this garden that students wanted and nobody is even here to maintain it. And so the idea with the weeding days and creating a group that's, you know, ha- has a lot of students, it's robust, um, it's institutionalized within the university, will have, you know, be able to make this a sustaining group where students every year can get involved. And students love pulling weeds. And it's just really cool when you're, when you're a student, you're, you don't really think much about the groundskeepers and in, just in society in general, whether we're talking about groundskeepers or farm workers or, you know, maintenance workers are invisibilized in yeah, society yeah. and kind of just seen as disposable. And we never really think about the occupational hazard of these workers mm. using chemicals that are really toxic to their health. And so it's really awesome for both the groundskeepers and the students to bridge that gap. And now our students, when they walk around campus, they can say hi to their friends these groundskeepers that they pull weeds with so it's just it's awesome it's a great study break (laughs) yeah it's fun (laughs) yeah good stress reliever for sure yeah speaking today Um, with a couple people from herbicide free campus uh mackenzie feldman is co-founder executive director and ariana masonov director of development is also with us um joining us virtually from across the country here today but they are based in california uh and in uc berkeley is where this all sort of first emerged and then it spread to the whole University of California system going glyphosate free. When did that happen? That happened in the end of spring, beginning of summer of 2019. Back in 2019. Okay. In May, wow. Actually. And that yeah. is a big school system. So that impacts a lot of students. But then you've also started working with, um, you know, secondary schools as well, right? So when we say campus, it's not just higher education, right? We want to be able to give tools to any any student who reaches out, any person really. Uh, but right now we're focused primarily on six universities because you know we're, we are very clear on how we are able to make change at UC Berkeley. But we realize you know schools are so different, public versus private, small versus big. Mm-hmm. So we our goal with these six schools, we created an accelerator program this year, and the goal is to get all those schools to be herbicide free by the end of 2021 and then be able to take on new schools. So we also give resources to high school students, even worked with a fifth grade class. Um, So any student who's interested can reach out and we can provide our toolkit and give resources. Um, But for our hands-on direct um, action training and organizing, it's we're focused on six schools and in six different states. Oh, cool. Wow. Excellent. Hopefully uh, University of Louisville may one day be there. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I wanted to ask you, yeah, exactly. yeah, what, um, <laughs> do you know much about the practices going on at University of Louisville? Yeah, we, uh, our story sounds very similar to yours where we have really wonderful groundskeepers who are so engaged in sustainability and really care. You know, these, these are folks who, you know, got into groundskeeping because they like to tend the land, right? Like they, they, they take great pride in their work and are, are, are really open to meeting and talking about different practices. But the, what we always hear is that the alternative to managing weeds with chemicals would mean more staff time. So organizing our students to volunteer, uh, to, I, you know, that seems like an obvious next step for us. Uh, but we're going to need the help of some organization like you to help see the way forward for sure. So, uh, yeah, I think it, probably a lot of schools are open to it. I mean, in a, in a way, it could be a money saver, too, if you're just worried about, like, the amount of money you spend on these things. But certainly, like, I don't I don't think most people are like excited about being a killer, you know, <laughs> but they feel like that's the only tool they have. I have seen drive by killing on our campus. And by that, I mean, people in, you know, these golf carts with the, the sprayer uh, driving by. <laughs> the planter beds oh, and, and spraying uh, not the whole thing but like you know just trying to hit each weed as they drive by like that's how strapped for time they are uh, and so thinking about it differently is going to require some help from folks like you and some models from elsewhere that's why I'm so grateful that you formed this organization and are working with so many schools uh, on it I think that when you talk about you know them driving by with sprayers what comes to mind is we have such an addiction to efficiency and, you know, mm. the least amount of effort and input to get the shortest amount of, you know, or the greatest amount of reward. And yeah. in this case, reward would be like killing the weeds, which is not even a reward at all. <laughs> and I think that when you think about, you know, organic land care and a more holistic management, it's slow, it's intentional, it's a process. And especially that organic transition, you know, we've been working on a pilot project on the UC Berkeley campus for three years and it didn't happen overnight. You know, they stopped using herbicides, but it took a while for the soil to balance and to know which organic inputs to use. And we do soil testing to really be able to track those changes. Oh, wow. But that is a, you know, it takes a lot of intention and you have to have a groundskeeper and a community that's willing to put the time and effort mm. into those transitions. No, absolutely. And let's let's t take some time and talk about the broader vision, too. I, I don't think the ultimate goal is that, you know, every student at a university is going to have to spend some time weeding. I, you know, I wouldn't be opposed to that idea, but it's probably not realistic. Right. Uh, let's talk about what a more sustainable landscape would look like rather than these ubiquitous, perfect, immaculate monocultural lawns, right? Um, so what are some alternatives that um, folks could think about in terms of more sustainable landscaping on a campus? Yeah, there's so many different ways. It really depends on the aesthetic goals of a campus. So if you're trying to keep it green and pristine like a lawn, you know, you can do soil testing and overseeding and aeration, compost to those things I talked about. But there's also, you know, one, you can just leave the weeds there and, you know, have make it an educational opportunity, maybe even have classes around it to teach people, um, you know, instead of spraying toxic chemicals, we have weeds. Here's how you can uh, use them. Um, you know, we can also, you can do mulching. You can bring goats in. Mm -hmm. Some of the hills in Berkeley use 
use goats and that's for uh, fire uh, restoration too. Um, you know, they eat everything. So that can be pretty awesome. Uh, also just, you know, growing more food. Seattle University is a great example of that. They're completely organic. We work with um, the awesome head of grounds there, this woman, Shannon. And she, you know, it's a big attraction for why students want to go there because the whole campus is awesome, edible, agroforestry um, situation. And it's just, and, and students are very engaged in that too. And I think with all the students we work with, I think the goal beyond just, yeah, it'd be great to have students picking weeds at every campus. But the broader goal is really teaching students that, hey, if you go to a school, you have a say in what it looks like. You have, you have a right to not only know what you're being exposed to, but saying, hey, I don't want to be exposed to these campuses. I pay a lot of money to attend this school. It's supposed to be a safe place of learning. I don't want to be exposed to chemicals. And yeah, I'm, I'm willing and excited to be involved in that participation process. Um, but I want a change. And if you get enough students empowered who feel like that, you know, work with the landscape architecture department, think about creative ways that we can change the, you know, the landscape of this space and, you know, a broader vision beyond that. I think Ariana touched about this, touched on this a little bit that, you know, universities are uh, this space that we hold so high in society um, and we look to for knowledge. And if we can make universities herbicide free and organic and, make that statement, this could have ripple effects, you know, in, in agriculture, especially because farm workers are exposed at such high amounts and often don't even know what they're being exposed to. So that's the broader vision is beyond schools, you know, to parks, to hospital grounds, to anywhere that has a green space, get people involved who are using that space. Because if we're using that space, we should have a say in, in what we're being exposed to and, and really protecting the people who are, mo who are most susceptible and vulnerable, which are our farm workers who are out in the fields every day. When you said, um, you know, thinking about what, how could we re-envision these landscapes, which yeah. is a huge part of the work that we do. I just wanted to bring in a really recent case study at one of our schools that we're working in, Grinnell College. They're in the middle of embarking on a really impressive prairie restoration project mm. in which they've taken out huge swaths of sod and lawn and they're replacing them with many different species of native Iowa prairie grass. Mm. And I think this is a really incredible, you know, example of how we can look back at what did this land look like before it was colonized and what are the native species that probably can help with, you know, just ecosystem balancing and having pollinators. And I think that that project is part of a larger initiative called the too much grass initiative which i think would be representative of our entire country um but it's been really amazing to see them you know really advocate for this transition to be done without the use of glyphosate because initially the landscaper that was hired or the botanist said that you know it was going to be mandatory that they did a one-time glyphosate application to kill the sod and the students had to really stand up against this person in a position of power and really advocate for the fact that this needed to be done in an herbicide-free manner. And it was symbolic in just changing the narrative around, you know, how these transitions happen on a larger scale. And they were successful. And we're so proud of how they were able to really, you know, embrace our ethos and mm. put it to work on the ground. 
Oh, that's great. Uh, I'm speaking today with a couple of folks from Herbicide Free Campus. we got Mackenzie and Ariana on the line joining us from across the country. They're working with six different universities in six different states right now to advance an herbicide-free agenda and supporting students at other schools and institutions across the country as well. Uh, you can learn more about them at herbicidefreecampus.org. And, and you guys are on social media as well, right? Yes, we are. Our Instagram is at Herbicide Free Campus. So check us out on there for all of our updates. Very cool. So let's dive into some of the broader societal issues here. Um, this isn't just about, I don't know, some people could look at this and be like, well, this is just like elite college students trying to protect themselves from toxins. But this is really a, a, an environmental justice issue that is about protecting some of the most vulnerable people in our society, right? You've mentioned briefly some of this, but, but could you flesh out a little bit more how the herbicide issue relates to environmental injustice? Yeah, absolutely. We take you know, a lot of what we learned um, about centering the workers who are most vulnerable is from the Lee Johnson versus Monsanto trial. I don't know if you're familiar, but if you're not, um, a grounds, former groundskeeper named Dwayne Lee Johnson sued Monsanto after he was um, exposed to Roundup on the job and ended up developing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Wow. He got really sick, didn't know what it was from, kept spraying every day. He sprayed Roundup every day at his job. And after a lot of research, he was, you know, he was, he, his backpack sprayer leaked one day. Right. Then again, at a different instance, he was getting all these skin rashes, did research and realized it could be from the chemical and reached out to the company. They never responded to him and he ended up suing and it was a huge landmark case. He won $289 million, which was then reduced to 78 million. Um, and he's still alive, but he is, it's a terminal illness and he's, fighting for his life and is just so amazing. There's a book that just came out called the Monsanto papers about it. The case was so monumental because it had ripple effects around the world. Mexico is in the process of banning glyphosate right now. A lot of countries, cities, schools have seen this case and thought, Hey, we should probably do something about this. It's not health that's motivating them. It's certainly liability. Yeah. Uh, that was one of the factors that helped us ban glyphosate at the UC system. And Lee's just an amazing person. And now there's over 100,000 people who have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma who have sued the company. And so, you know, really looking at his case and, and thinking, um, it reminds us all that at the end of the day, the workers are the most important. Those are the people that are the most affected. And it is really central to our work to, as challenging as it is sometimes, to stand up against them. And a lot of times they don't want to change their practices. They don't agree. They don't want students telling them what to do. It's really central that we work to build a relationship with them and get um, their buy-in and their support for this transition because it sucks when the top, you know, comes down and says you have to change all your practices and they are never, we're never consulted on this. So our students really work with the groundskeepers themselves. And just in general, beyond that, um, you know, we're in New York City, uh, for example, they just banned herbicides on um, city property. Is that and, right? Wow. Yeah. And this came uh, in large part due to advocacy from the Black Institute, a Black-led think tank in New York City that developed uh, an awesome report called The Poison Parks that showed that um, in Black and low-income areas, um, people were more exposed to glyphosate than in white affluent areas. And so it's not just in agriculture communities, um, you know, where farm workers or people 
living near the fields are exposed. Even in cities, there's this race element where the nice parts of town are, you know, less sprayed with chemicals, which is really problematic, but I guess unsurprising, (laughs) you know, when you learn, when you start to learn about environmental injustice in this country. Yeah, you almost get the sense that maybe Monsanto is a little bit on the run here, a bit on the defensive uh, after some of these victories. Uh, what is the status of uh, studies about glyphosate and its impact on, on human health? What do we know right now? Well, the World Health Organization named glyphosate a probable carcinogen, I think, back in 2015. And that is sort of you know the gold standard that we use. If the World Health Organization says that this is potentially a carcinogen. It's also neurotoxic. There's impact on liver and kidney disease. It's a reproductive toxin. Mm. The list goes on. And I think that we really try to involve the precautionary principle in Mm. which if we have the knowledge and understanding that this could be a detrimental, you know, toxin to be exposed to, we don't have to wait until there's causal evidence proving the, you know, outcomes in all of the health issues. And it's so broad. And I think that, you know, from a human health perspective, but also from an environmental health perspective, looking at the impact on waterway pollution and ocean acidification and the insect apocalypse and pollinator collapse, and it's all so connected. And I think that we really try to incorporate corporate responsibility and we do research on the impact of these corporate giants on universities and how they can actually impact research um, through filing Freedom of Information Acts and working with organizations like U.S. Right to Know to try to uncover all of these behind-the-scenes agreements that can really impact um, the widespread knowledge. Yeah, to give you an example of that, when we banned glyphosate at the UC system, they formed a task force of professors and um, weed scientists and a doctor and people to assess, you know, how are they going to move forward after banning glyphosate? How are they going to think about other herbicides that they're using? And how are they going to manage the land? And one weed scientist from UC Davis wrote a letter who was on the task force, close any corporate, um, any type of influence or bias that you might have. And uh, they said there was no, you know, bias that inhibited any of these people from being on the task force. And this one weed scientist wrote to the UC president saying, I think we should bring back glyphosate. It's safe, all of these things. And when I, I wasn't on the task force, um, but Bridget, who founded this with me at UC Berkeley, was. And so I, I read the letter and I thought, wait, this doesn't seem right. So I did some research on him and found that he was, had taken $700,000 from Monsanto through grants and other things. So we got wow. him revoked from the task force. But This is just one example of how research and money from corporations could literally influence decisions, you know, such as what is sprayed on the grounds. And Mm. so that was pretty crazy. Mm. It is insidious. Uh, So there's there's impacts on on our groundskeepers who tend to be overrepresented probably people of color uh the the same thing with the farm workers i mean gosh the situation in california must be particularly extreme with all the the black and brown folks working in the farm fields of man just like you were mentioning there uh in the the vineyards and things like that uh where where these chemicals are so commonly sprayed uh and uh, many you know not even with documentation, so they're not even considered citizens in the U.S. Like, these are the, truly some of the most vulnerable people. 
But the the issue can even come home to roost right here in a place like Louisville, right? I, I think about the the Blackleaf Superfund site right here in West Louisville in, in the Parkland neighborhood. Uh, this is sort of the legacy of just even the manufacture of these herbicides and pesticides. Uh, and what a what a long-term legacy of environmental racism that can leave behind. Uh, you know, the, the manufacturer of these things are probably also overrepresented in communities of color and, and some of our most marginalized people. So, I mean, the, when we when we look at the full sort of life cycle of, of these kinds of chemicals, yeah, the injustice of it, it kind of makes the mind real. Right. Absolutely. And with the Blackleaf site, you know, this is happening in Louisville. You all should go read more about it if, if you're not familiar. But with that site, you know, they tested the soil and it showed that it had DDT contamination. And that's something that's been banned now for years, thanks to Rachel Carson. But we, you know, there's still DDT shown in, in women's breast milk and in our waters. And these chemicals don't go away. And so it's really, you know, important, like you said, these the chemicals themselves go in the soil and all these things. And then the, the makers of the chemical, these manufacturing plants, uh, once they're even shut down. How is that affecting our ecosystems and our society? And a lot of times the EPA will say, okay, this site is cleaned up. You know, this is not a super fun site. Um, and I know that, you know, thanks to there's toxic detectives, as they say, they'll go <laughs> back into these places because people are still getting sick and do testing and realize, no, this is not cleaned up. Mm. You know, these, these places are still leaching chemicals. And so everything from the production to the post-production once these uh, chemical companies are shut down, uh, it's really important to look into the effects of all of them. And, and you know, I think toxins are, are a lot of times, especially herbicides and pesticides, not included in the climate change conversation. But uh, when we think about manufacturing these pesticides, they're fossil fuel derived. And so it's something that we believe really should be talked about more when, it, when we're talking about climate change. And, you know, also with uh, healthy soil, you can... Um, you know, pull carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and store it in the ground. But if your if your soil is sprayed with chemicals um, and it kills off all the healthy microorganisms, your soil will not be able to do that. And so that's something that we really want to uh, spread the word about through our organization. So glad you brought that up. Yes, the 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 problem isn't just chemicals, but but industrial agriculture in general is is such a large contributor. To our global climate crisis as and our general environmental crisis, a, a, a extinction of species and the, the issues with pollinators and everything you've brought up already, but uh, it it just doesn't have to be that way. In fact, agriculture can be part of the solution. If we do sustainable regenerative agriculture, it's going to fix a lot of carbon in carbon rich soils, which is what you want if you're a farmer, right? So we've we've gotten rid of that sort of natural sustainable process and replaced it with this chemical process that sort of exploded with the explosion in the use of fossil fuels and sort of all this surplus uh, why don't we just use it to you know increase our production on these agricultural lands but um, that's that's not a good way to think about a healthy relationship to the planet and we see the the many ramifications of of how that has rippled out and affect us in so many ways. Uh, so um, thank you for bringing that up. And then let's think about, 
you know, the impact on, on water quality, too. You know, it was just last month WDRB reported that a new study is out from the U.S. Geological Survey, right, about pesticides in U.S. rivers and streams. And they say that on average, 17 different pesticides were detected at least once in the 74 river and stream sites that were sampled, uh, you know, a dozen times per year from 2013 to 17. Uh, and herbicides are were detected more frequently than even insecticides and fungicides, which I guess just points to the ubiquitous nature of these things, right? It's it's again, it's not just people worried about the crops, uh, but it's you know everybody who calls in, you know, True Green to come spray their lawn, right? Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point there. It's not just industrial agriculture, and one of the biggest issues is that. You know, we have really been targeting stores like Home Depot and Lowe's Mm. and trying to advocate for them to stop selling Roundup because these home gardeners who have, you know, very little education around the true toxicity of these substances, they're liberally spraying them on their lawns. Well, sure, it's it's in the store. How can it be toxic? (laughs) It's normalized. Like there's not everybody's doing it. Warning labels. It it might have a Prop 65 if you're in California, but that doesn't even mean anything to people anymore. Mm. And I think that you really have to look at it from so many, you know, areas of the ecosystem and thinking about, you know, today's World Oceans Day. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting in my backyard and I live on a hill and whatever we use on our lawn is going to run off down the hill and into the creek that's going to run into the river and into the ocean. And it's all so connected. And I think that we have this rhetoric in our society that's very siloed. And we think about, you know, we think about water health and then we think about terrestrial ecosystems mm. and we think about humans and they're all very disconnected, but they're all so interconnected. And mm. I think that that's, one of the ways that we really like to talk about this issue and looking at all of the all of the elements that it can really impact. Well, we're nearing the end of our time together, and some of what we've talked about is pretty bleak and depressing. <laughs> but of course, your example of organizing students to resist all of this is one inspiration. But maybe a, a good note to be in, to end on. We didn't talk about it too much. Would be like, what's good about weeds? Let's let's just reconceptualize the problem, right? Maybe it's not actually a problem. You want to share some of your favorite weeds? I'll hand that one to Ariana. Uh, every time we go on a hike, she's like picking up everything yeah. and eating it. So. <laughs> yeah, we recently went on a foraging walk with a professor in Berkeley and we were picking, you know, miner's lettuce and there's so many different breeds of plants and we really have to just change how we think about them like a weed is just a terrestrial plant that we've decided is not good enough (laughs) to be part of our like everyday landscape and I think that you know it brings so much biodiversity and they're natural like the weed is just the western perception of a plant that we've decided is not good and so there's so much possibility and you know what you mentioned about young people organizing like these student leaders are so empowered when after they go through our program and they really will go on to not only impact the herbicide and environmental health space but to really be just empowered leaders in the next generation and i think that's one of my favorite aspects about the work that we do we're really uplifting young people because they're going to inherit this world i mean we're going to inherit this world and there's a lot of work that needs to be done but there's a lot of like passion and power in the students with whom we work yeah, and when you graduate, you know, and you're, especially if you're studying something like environmental science, it's pretty bleak. And 
there's a lot of times where I was depressed leaving class being like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, we're messing up our earth, but they don't really give you a lot of tools to change that in college, especially undergrad is just throwing a lot of information at you. And, you know, we didn't have, they didn't mention clubs that you can plug into to really combat your eco and anxiety. So I think, yes, we're trying to, you know, eliminate herbicides from our schools, but like Ariana said, we're also just wanting to empower student leaders and go on to do amazing things. One of our student leaders at Grinnell, he ran, ran for uh, soil and water commissioner of his town and he won. And that's a position that's usually held by conventional farmers. And so he's really combating that rhetoric around, you know, our dependence um, on chemicals and just, you know, our students are all going on to do amazing things. And if we can just be able to provide a space where they can meet other people around the country, even if it's virtually that are like-minded and really feel like they have a community and yes. a place to channel their energy and their anxiety about climate change. Uh, if we can do that, that is a win in itself. So it's been a, a real honor to meet. I never thought when, when me and Bridget started this, that we would have a chance to work with other students and there'd be other people interested in this. And so it, it keeps me going and excited every day when I jump out of bed, just to be able to work with students who are so excited. And so I'm really grateful to, to have that community. Oh, that's so great. Mackenzie and Ariana from Herbicide Free Campus. You can learn more about them at herbicidefreecampus.org. Hopefully we'll get y'all out either virtually or in person sometime to the University of Louisville uh, and, and get our students engaged as yes. well. But in the meantime, are, is there a way that uh, listeners can support your work? Yeah, absolutely. If you head to herbicidefreecampus.org, in the top right-hand corner, there's a nice green donate button, and we would love for you to help us, you know, reach cool. more students on more schools around the country. And do you do like policy alert kind of stuff too? Yeah, we collaborate with different groups who are doing um, specific, you know, calls to action. And I think that our Home Depot and Lowe's campaign right now would probably be the most direct way for people to engage, but we'll definitely keep your listeners in the loop. Fantastic. And I'm going to put all kinds of links to more information and videos and stories for people uh, in the program notes for the podcast version of this program. You'll find it archived at forwardradio.org on our SoundCloud. Wow. Mackenzie and Ariana, thank you so much for inspiring me today and for taking the time to inspire our listeners. Thank you, Justin. What a wonderful opportunity. And we hope to see you in Louisville one day. All right. Thank you so much for having us. Sign up for our newsletter and you can stay updated on all of our events and actions and thanks justin for having us it's been awesome perfect all right stay tuned friends coming up in just a minute your community action calendar with all kinds of ideas about how you can get engaged in sustainability now so stay tuned Down by the waterside, we take our time. Down by the waterside, got no worries and no worries. Down by the waterside, good Lord. Gonna set them free, yeah, yeah. Set me free, yeah, yeah. Set me free, and we're rolling on the river. 
Right, my friends, we are back here on Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg. You're tuned in to WFMP LP Louisville. We are Louisville's Forward Radio, your community radio station, and this is your community action calendar. I need you to get your pencils sharpened and your calendars out. Get ready to take action for sustainability this week. It's not going to happen without you getting involved in the mix, and there are so many opportunities. I tell you what, Tuesday, June 29th is a lit up with sustainability my friends so uh, you're gonna have to pick and choose what you want to do on tuesday but tuesday through thursday uh their black lives matter louisville group is going to be doing some west end canvassing and they're looking for volunteers you can meet up at either 10 a.m or 8 p.m so it'll be a morning canvas and an evening canvas at southern star baptist church at 2308 algonquin parkway and again that's tuesday the 29th Wednesday and then Thursday, July 1st. Black Lives Matter is continuing their daily canvassing of the Algonquin neighborhood starting again Tuesday through Thursday, 10 a.m. or 8 p.m. You can sign up for a shift and help get information out to the community to make sure that residents know what's going on in local government and how to advocate for themselves. They will also be issuing calls to action for keeping the Algonquin pool open and getting resources to the West End. You can learn more and sign up at facebook.com slash black lives matter louisville facebook.com slash black lives matter louisville to help out with the west end canvassing that leaves from southern star baptist church tuesday through thursday 10 a.m to 8 p.m this week now Here's what is also happening Tuesday, June 29th at noon. You can join Food in Neighborhoods, as I mentioned last week, and co-host Beloved Community for a couple upcoming events at which they'll be making the case for significant funding for an equitable and resilient local food system in Louisville. So this Tuesday, the 29th, from noon to 1.30, there'll be another food justice learning lab on the topic of what makes a food system secure and equitable, land, water, infrastructure, and urban and agriculture. This food justice learning lab will lead up to a food justice reckoning forum taking place next week on July 7th at 2.30, where you will hear from food-related business people, urban food producers, food policy activists, and other community members. In addition to inviting Metro Council members, Finn is inviting mayoral candidates and some Metro government staff to the forum. All will be online. You can join through Zoom or Facebook Live. Either way, the place to go to find more information and register for that Zoom is at facebook.com slash F-I-N Louisville. That's food in neighborhoods. Facebook.com slash F-I-N Louisville. Now, also Tuesday in the evening, there's a bunch of great events. Uh, Green Convene is taking place on Tuesday the 29th from 6 to 7.30, also online. The topic this month is how can a city achieve a 100% renewable energy goal? The Louisville Sustainability Council invites you to this Green Convene featuring the U.S. Department of Energy's National Renewable Energy Laboratory, or NREL. In February 2020, Louisville Metro Council, of course, passed the 100% Renewable Energy Ordinance, setting out the goals of 100% clean electricity for metro operations by 2030, 100% clean energy, including fuels, for metro operations by 2035, and 100% clean energy community-wide by 2040. 
Well, how can the city meet these goals? To learn more, the council is hosting a discussion with NREL, the city's partner, and charting a course to meet Louisville's 2030 goal. The Colorado-based NREL specializes in renewable energy and energy efficiency research and development. So join us as we discuss the challenges and possible paths forward for our community with Owen Zinneman, NREL's senior policy and market analyst. You can register for this free online event at Louisville Sustainability Council.org. And again, Green Convenience taking place this Tuesday, the 29th at 6 p.m. online. Go to Louisville Sustainability Council.org to register. Now, if you'd prefer, there's going to be a virtual public hearing about the Cedar Creek Water Quality Treatment Center, also taking place on the 29th at 6 to 8 p.m. In response to recent pressure from the Kentucky chapter of the Sierra Club, the Kentucky Division of Water has agreed to hold a virtual public hearing on Tuesday and to extend the period for written comments until June 30th on the proposed water discharge permit for the City Creek Water Quality Treatment Center right here in southern Jefferson County. The purpose of the meeting is to obtain comments from people like you on the draft five-year permit, which the Division of Water proposes to reissue for wastewater discharges associated with a wastewater treatment plant. The existing plant is has a design capacity of 7.5 million gallons per day. The permit's own fact sheet confirms that downstream from the plant, Cedar Creek is seriously impaired due to significant nutrient pollution. The existing permit has no numeric limits for nitrogen and inadequate limits for phosphorus, yet the proposed permit does nothing to strengthen these terms. The Division of Water ought to set a limit for nitrogen and a lower limit for phosphorus. Such action would significantly reduce the nutrient pollution in our own Cedar Creek from this very facility. Without a more restrictive permit, Cedar Creek, Floyd's Fork, and the Ohio River will continue to become increasingly impaired, and of course the Gulf of Mexico's dead zone will continue to expand. Well, to learn more uh, and submit your comments by Wednesday and to register to speak at Tuesday's public hearing, you can get all the information you need at sierraclub.org slash Kentucky. That's S-I-E-R-R-A club.org slash Kentucky. And again, the public hearing is Tuesday the 29th, 6 to 8 p.m. And you can submit your written comments by Wednesday to dowpublicnotice at ky.gov. dowpublicnotice at ky.gov. Also on Tuesday at 6 p.m. Oh, so much great stuff. Well, this one's in person. Uh, it's Russell, A Place of Promise. Their summer learning series continues with a focus on community land trusts. I mentioned it to you a few weeks ago. Well, this is their in-person event on Tuesday the 29th at 6 p.m. at 1718 West Muhammad Ali Avenue. You can learn more at facebook.com slash Russell Promise. And it is, again, part of the learning series about community land trusts, which is a community-led nonprofit organization that governs the assets of a land trust and provides stable housing rates to uplift affordable home ownership. You're going to learn how a CLT is operated, the potential benefits of a land trust in a historically black neighborhood, and the difference between traditional home ownership and home ownership in a community land trust. It's going to be fun as well as educational. There'll be a free food trust 
truck. Uh, you can bring lawn chairs and the family and join the community learning circle, and there'll be activities for the kids with the Play Cousins Collective. It's all taking place this Tuesday at 6 p.m. at 1718 West Muhammad Ali Boulevard. And again, the place to go for more information is facebook.com slash Promise. Whew, we're done with Tuesday. <laughs> Some tough decisions. Now let's move on to Wednesday. And every Wednesday at 10 a.m., Jefferson County Cooperative Extension is doing their great free virtual classes on gardening and sustainable agriculture. This Wednesday, June 30th at 10 a.m., you can learn about composting. Learn how to create a home composting system with horticultural technician Carol Wilder. And you can find the link to register at facebook.com slash Jefferson Co. Extension, Jefferson Co. Extension. And then the following week on July 7th, you won't want to miss Scouting for Bad Insects. You can learn how to identify the signs of bad insects in your yard, garden, or landscape. And they're Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Register at facebook.com slash Jefferson Co. Extension. Also on Wednesday at noon, there'll be another great virtual program on June 30th. It's MODIS, Studying the Birds of Bernheim. You can join us for this free program where Andrew Barry, Director of Conservation at Bernheim Arboretum and Research Forest, will discuss the international bird research of which Bernheim is a part. MODIS is an international network of researchers using coordinated base stations to study movements of wildlife on local, regional, and hemispheric scales. Bernheim outfitted four species of songbirds with life tags, which allow birds to be tracked throughout multiple migrations year after year. As birds fly over the nodes that are installed throughout the arboretum and forest, their life tags globally unique digital ID will check in, allowing real-time data to be collected on the birds' movements throughout Bernheim and anywhere they travel throughout the world where these nodes are installed. This allows Bernheim to be part of an international bird conservation effort. As the first site to install this system in Kentucky, they've helped fill a crucial void in the system's geographical reach. You can learn more about this really cool research project to help uh, track and this protect our migrating bird species by attending the virtual program this Wednesday the 30th from 12 to 1. And you can register for it at bernheim.org, B-E-R-N-H-E-I-M.org. And lastly, here on Sustainability Now, I want to let you know about the first Saturday nature hike taking place at Bernheim on Saturday, July 3rd at 2 p.m. You can join Bernheim Naturalists for this family-friendly a hike of a little less than an hour, a nature hike on the first Saturday of each month, and each Saturday features a new hike to a different place for exploration, adventure, and a little bit of learning. Space is limited and social distancing will be enforced. Registration is required by 4 p.m. on Friday, and you can call 502-955-8512 or register at bernheim.org. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. I thank you so much for tuning in today. And I wish you well this week. And I will be back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Now the young folks roll on that little cap and flow. Oh, Mary, all happy and bright.